0: Now, hear God's holy word from Ephesians chapter 1, continuing our study in the book of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed... You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for giving us your word. We praise you for your Holy Spirit, who helps us to understand it and receive it. We pray that you would now fill us with your Holy Spirit And so that everything that I say today might be helpful. Help me to forget anything that is not helpful or not correct. Deliver us all from error today. Deliver us all from distraction. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. The Last Battle is the title of the final book in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia and in The Last Battle Lewis wraps up the story of the adventures in Narnia with this epic war between the races and creatures who serve the noble Aslan and those who serve the false god Tash and Tash is a is an anti-Aslan he's everything that Aslan isn't. He's horrible and cruel, and he's an oppressor. So so everyone in Narnia fights. Everyone, all the creatures and all the races, fight for Aslan, except for the dwarves. You remember? The dwarves don't fight. The dwarves don't show up. Because they're caught between the two, and, and they cynically Refuse to pledge their loyalty to either Aslan or to Tash. And the rallying cry is always the dwarves are for the dwarves. That's, that's the dwarves are for nobody else. The dwarves are for the dwarves. And toward the end of the book, however, the dwarves' skepticism and their isolationism eventually makes them unable to appreciate or value anything. And and despite their resistance, if you remember how it all ends, Aslan delivers them anyway, and he attempts to bless them and bestow gifts on them, but they're trapped in a prison of their own minds. Uh, they've been delivered through this battle to the real Narnia. They're in the glorious, beautiful, real Narnia. But in their minds, they think they're still locked in a stable. Do you remember remember that scene? Those of you who read the book, uh, sweet Lucy, when she sees these pathetic dwarves in this this pitiful state, uh, she pleads with Aslan. And I want to read a little section. This is so good. Aslan, said Lucy through her tears, could you? will you do something for these poor dwarfs? Dearest, said Aslan, I will show you both what I can and what I cannot do. He came close to the dwarfs and gave a low growl, low, but it set all the air shaking. But the dwarfs said to one another, hear that? That's the gang at the other end of the stable trying to frighten us. They do it with a machine of some kind. Don't take any notice. They won't take us in again. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarves' knees. Pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices. And each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sorts of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, And another said he had a bit of an old turnip. And a third said he found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red red wine. They raised them to their lips and said, Oh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. But very soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had. And they started grabbing and snatching and went on quarreling till in a few minutes there was a free fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. (laughs) You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. Lewis is just so good, isn't he? He's just, he, he exercises this amazing skill of giving us a vision of the human condition through his stories. And, and in this case, revealing how much we And our world, our society is so dwarf-like. Here we are swimming in the blessings of our great God, the, the great deliverance and the sustenance of our creator, and yet we fail to give thanks to the giver and creator of all good things. We take them for granted. We take the thing he gives us and we think it's something else. We misuse it. We manipulate it to our own ends because we don't see the value in the thing that God has given us. And we don't see the value in using it the way that he has required us to use it, which has maximum pleasure built into it. You see, when you use good things the way God intended, that's the maximum pleasure, not taking it and twisting it and breaking it and destroying it as we are so wont to do. And we do this all the time. We misuse men, we misuse women, we misuse children, we misuse marriage, we misuse wine, we misuse money, we misuse authority, and we could create a list and be here all day of the things that we misuse and misunderstand and are not grateful for. This isn't, this isn't a modern phenomenon. This isn't something that just started in the last two weeks ever since Adam, mankind has always been like these dwarves. Sin puts us in a prison of our own minds where we trust only our own perception. We trust only our own emotions. Our own internal subjective understanding is our basis for our actions and for our beliefs and our our, our thoughts. We are a law to ourselves. We do what is right in our own eyes. And we are so afraid of being duped, of being taken in by anything, as the dwarves were, that they couldn't be taken out of their prison. So we can't be taken out of this prison. When, and here's the great tragedy, we're so wrapped up in ourselves, and it's such a, it's such, it's such a tragedy because God has given us this objective, external standard outside of ourselves. He has given us the perfect, obedient, majestic, glorious Jesus to put our trust in. Everything that we have and enjoy, everything that is life-giving, everything that is life-affirming, everything that is fulfilling is in Jesus. It comes from him. It's not found in us. You see, it's not located in us. We don't, we don't generate life. We don't, we're not the source of, of anything that, that is good. It's, it's all outside of us. And it comes from him. But, but we retreat into this Dorvish tribalism. And we, we live in a world that we've created for ourselves, a world of our own perception that is defined by our own warped perspective. So that we can see things from God's perspective, though, Paul, in his letter to the Ephesian, uh, Ephesians, he, he scoops us up. And he puts us in the heavenlies so that we can see the world and all things, all these blessings, all these good things from God's perspective. He pulls back the curtain. Last week I said, I've titled this study, Mystery and Manners. There are three mysteries that Paul goes into in this letter to the Ephesian church. He talks about the mystery of how God intends to bring all things together in heaven and earth in Jesus. How he intends to bring all men together, both Jew and Gentile, all races together in the church. And then the third mystery is him bringing the church together with Jesus. So these are the three mysteries, that the three legs of the stool that the uh, letter to the Ephesians is built around. And as we under, understand and uncover these mysteries and these things are revealed to us, it, it shows us how to walk. It shows us how to live and talk and work. It shows us how we're to live in relationship to one another. And so it has to do with our manners. And so, as I said, with thanks to uh, Flannery O'Connor, I took that title from her book of essays, but, but it's so good for Ephesians. That's why we've titled this, I've titled this, Mystery and Manners. And that's what Paul is doing, first of all. He's showing us this, this mystery, taking us into the heavenlies and showing us God's perspective on, first of all, our own redemption, our own deliverance, our own salvation. This this letter to the church in Ephesus opens with this hymn of praise that I read just a few minutes ago, where Paul recounts God's mighty work of deliverance on our behalf. And he shows us what each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has done to secure our redemption, to, to, to work our salvation, to make us accepted to bring us into the fellowship of the triune God. And he uses this little phrase over and over again uh, to keep drawing our attention back to the focal point. We never get more than a few words without without our attention being brought back to Jesus. It's all about our being found in Him, in Christ, in the Beloved. This is a phrase he repeats over and over. He's already done, we looked at it last week in verse 1. This letter is to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, we we typically think of being faithful to Christ Jesus, but but here Paul says you are in Christ, and then he opens up this this refrain, uh, and, he, and he keeps coming back to it. In, in verse three, he says we are blessed in the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse four, just as he chose us in Him. At the end of verse six, he's made us accepted in the beloved. Verse seven, in Him we have redemption in uh, verse 10 that he might gather together in one thing one all things in christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him in the very next verse he starts it again in him also we have obtained an inheritance verse 13 in him you also trusted at the end of the verse in whom also having believed you were sealed with the holy spirit of promise over and over and over our attention is being drawn where To Jesus, our salvation and our life and our future and all blessing is where? In Him. In Him. In Jesus. In the Beloved. Over and over and over. Well, why why are you making such a big deal about this, Duane? I can read. I can see it. What's, What's the big deal? The emphasis is so critical for us to hear because so many modern Expressions of the gospel locate salvation not in him, but in you. Salvation is about getting something right, fixed, clicked, a switch flipped in you. It's about doing something in you, uh, getting a new feeling in your heart or a new set of ideas in your head. When folks talk about being saved or 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 possessing god 's grace it 's like God has given us something that we 've put in our pocket, you know something that we 've put in our wallet or purse, and we 've got it right are you saved? yeah, yeah, I think so yep yep it's right here i 've got it it 's a thing that i 've got but that's thinking of grace as a substance or something that you can hold on to is an error in this great hymn of praise at the start of Ephesians. salvation is not so much about getting something. Uh, into us, in, in a secret hidden part of us, a part no one can see or understand. Salvation is not about getting something into us, but getting us into union with Jesus, getting us into Christ. It's about putting us in Jesus. And if that's true, and it is because scriptures say it, if it's true, that means salvation is not based on some internal subjective uh, a personal experience. Union with Jesus is objective. It is external. It is communal. It, it is Salvation it is membership in the saved community who are in union with Jesus. It's not simply about getting something inside of you called salvation or something inside of you called grace that you possess all by yourself. It's about you being in union. You are in union with the elect one. How do you know you're elect? Because I'm in union with the elect one. Jesus is the elect one. How do I know that I'm beloved? Because I'm in union with the beloved one. How do I know that God is pleased with me? Because God is pleased with Jesus, his son, and I am in him. You see, that's the perspective. and That that, that ought to turn our minds away from our own uh, daily ups and downs of feeling and wondering where we stand with God. it's it's not, it's not a matter of how you how you feel today. I, I've had this conversation with so many of you. And you know what I'm talking about. Uh, when you uh, we, we some of us grew up in environments where, you you uh, go to a youth rally or you go to a DC talk concert uh, or you go to a Carmen concert. How many of you have ever been to a Carmen concert? I mean those yeah Anthony I see that hand. Um, uh, we. Uh, You you go and you just, you get so emotionally fired up and so, and so everything's so right and you're walking on a cloud and then two weeks later you lose your temper or you cuss or you, or you, you know, uh, lie. Uh, and, and then you feel terrible. And then you doubt yourself. You doubt your standing with God. And we're not trained in this, in this mechanism of, of daily or weekly confession of sins. We, we just think, well, I'm just going to sit here and be miserable until the next youth rally or revival or Christian concert that's going to that's gonna pick me back up again. You see, that's, that's locating our assurance and our relationship to God in us. And Paul says that's not where it is. It's in him. It's in Jesus. And we'll see here how the whole Trinity works together to place us in Jesus. Paul sings about what the Father has done, what the Son has done, and what the Holy Spirit has done and is doing. The Father elects, the Son redeems, the Holy Spirit uh, seals. And and another way to look at it is is temporally, in Ages past, before the foundation of the world, the Father has elected. In, in time, Jesus has come to redeem and deliver. And now the Holy Spirit continues to seal and, and, and put us in union with the triune God. So let's dig in. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 3. Um, we read last week, and I want to I pick up right here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Last week we talked about what does it mean to bless God. Here Paul blesses God. What does that mean? Well, it means to express gratitude primarily with our lips. To to thank someone and to give thanks to anyone acknowledges dependence. If I, if I thank you, that means you've given me something that I need. You've given me something that I require. But if I'm like one of Lewis's dwarfs, I don't like to be dependent. I don't like to be beholden. I don't like to admit that you have something that I need or that I lack something that you have. So rather than expressing gratitude, I respond with resentment. I respond with bitterness rather than thanksgiving. But you see, when we thank God, when we bless God, we acknowledge that we're dependent. We're contingent every second on his mercies. And we're not resentful. We, we admit and we say we're not resentful. We are grateful. And the God who has blessed us turns around and blesses us again. He thanks us. He gives us all kinds of gifts. Paul calls them spiritual blessings. <laughs> you think, Oh, well, that's real nice. Spiritual blessings, what's that? What, that's, is that like invisible blessings? Is, is that like when somebody uh, gives you a card at Christmas and they said, uh, hey, Merry Christmas. I gave $20 to the cat shelter in your name. You know, love you. And, and you think, that's not a gift? What is that? That's, give me $20. And if I want to give it to the cat shelter, which I'm not, uh, <laughs> uh, I'll, let me make that decision. Uh, is that what a spiritual blessing is like? It's just like a warm feeling, you know, it's just like this lame thing. No, not at all. When you, when you hear spiritual, don't think invisible. Spiritual blessings are not invisible blessings. Spiritual blessings are capital S. Spiritual blessings are the blessings of the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit give? Well, what the Holy Spirit primarily gives is life. The Spirit of God breathed into Adam and gave him life and made him a living soul. So everything that the Spirit gives us are the things, not only does he give us life, but he gives us the things that that keep life going. He gives us sustenance, air, food, water, but also the things that make life abundant. Fruitfulness, strength, productivity, energy, Festivity. These are spiritual blessings. Capital S. Don't, don't think spirit means invisible. Think spiritual. These are the things that come from the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit gives life, the things that make life abundant. He also, the Spirit gives structure. Look at His work. Look at the operations of the Spirit in creation. In Genesis 1, God's Holy Spirit hovers over the darkness. He hovers over the void the waters. And what does he start to do? He starts pushing the dominion of darkness back. And he starts bringing order out of chaos. He brings structure out of confusion. He separates day from night. He separates the atmosphere from the earth. He separates the land from the uh, uh, waters. And so spiritual blessings, blessings of the Spirit, are those things which order our lives. The Spirit gives structure and consistency and what we would call liturgy. You all have a daily liturgy in your home. It may be a bad liturgy, it may be a very good liturgy, but you have an order by which you, you do things in your, in your life. And that's the, the Spirit gives good liturgy, good order. What we, what we have from the Spirit, what we get from the Spirit is life in its fullness. He gives us life, he gives us structure, in order that we can, number three, take Dominion. These blessings, Paul says, these blessings are in the heavenlies. What does that mean? Well, heaven heaven is not uh, another place that has no relationship or relevance to earth. It's, it's not like just this thing where maybe angels and those who've passed away go, but it really has no, no relevance to our lives. No, in the beginning, God created... God created two environments. He created heaven and he created earth. And throughout the scriptures we see, and it it is revealed to us, that heaven is the blueprint and earth is the raw material. And and the story of history, the structure of history, is that the earth is being gradually made into the image of what is in heaven. God God created someone to do that work, to remake earth in the image of heaven. God set a foreman over the earth and That was Adam. That was man. And God put Adam and Eve at the top of the pyramid over all creation. Literally at the top of creation. Uh, The Garden of Eden must have been on some kind of plateau or mountain. How do we know that? Because it's got four rivers flowing out of it to water the earth. So then... uh, you know, waters don't flow uphill. Water flows downhill. River flows downhill. So God literally puts Adam on a mountain between earth and heaven so he could look at earth with heavenly perspective and remake earth in the image of heaven. Well, Adam fell. He didn't do his job. But that's what we get with Moses, don't we? Moses go up, goes up a mountain. He gets a heavenly image. He gets a heavenly vision of what God wants to happen on earth. And then he goes down the mountain and he builds the tabernacle after the model of God's heavenly temple. And this tabernacle that Moses directs and, and superintends its building, this, this tabernacle was at the heart of God's reformation and reclamation project through Israel. The heavenly structure and order is a template Earth. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you know, I I think it's obvious. There are no right angles, there are no straight lines in nature, right? I mean, everything is curvy and everything's rambling and everything's sprawling in nature. But when God gives man instructions, he tells man to build things with straight lines, he tells man to build things that have right angles, that have symmetry. And we get these visions of heaven, like, like Moses gets, like, like Ezekiel gets. Ezekiel's called up in the heavenlies to measure God's heavenly temple. And that heavenly temple has corners. It has straight lines. It has a measurable height and length and breadth. Later in Revelation, John sees a vision of the heavenly city. And what, what is it shaped like? It's a perfect cube. It's as long as it is wide as it is tall. That that is the order and the structure and the organization of the spirit, which means that time also matters. Calendars matter. Clocks matter. This is is our dominion over time. So when Jesus tells us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he's he's asking us to pray for God to continue this project of reshaping earth in the image of God of heaven. We bring heaven's order to all of earth's dimensions and all spheres of authority and all of society. Man is the agent of glorification on the earth, and we are commissioned to remake the earth in the style of heaven. Heaven impresses itself on the earth through the work of the saints. These are the gifts of the Spirit that are in heavenly places. Paul says our blessings are in the heavenly places in Christ. And now, He goes on to show us how we have access to these blessings because we have ascended with Jesus, because we're enthroned with him. Now we get heaven's perspective and we get to look down on earth with the intention and of, of reshaping it, we also get the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit to do this work. So, so Paul begins to sharpen our focus and give us heaven's perspective. He writes, You have been chosen for this calling before the foundation of the earth so that we can walk before him in holiness and blamelessness. The blessings that we have been imparted are not ours to waste. They're not ours to ignore or to uh, uh, abandon Uh, The blessings are married to holiness. If you aren't holy, you don't get to exercise dominion. You lose what you have. You lose life. So God has chosen you in Christ to be holy. This, This idea of God choosing his people shouldn't shouldn't be worrisome, it shouldn't be controversial, it shouldn't, shouldn't give us ulcers if we understand what God was doing with Israel in the Old Covenant. It's the same vocabulary that, that, that Paul is drawing from here. God says back in Deuteronomy 14, to Israel, he says, you are a holy people to Yahweh your God, and Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And that special treasure, that special favor of God that rested on Israel, rested on them not because of anything they had done, nothing in Israel, not, not their size or their righteousness, nothing prompted God to choose them as his people. Deuteronomy 7, God says, Yahweh did not set his love on you nor cho- choose you because you were more in number than any other people for you were least of all the peoples, but because Yahweh loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. He chose you. His choosing them was only based on his love for them. They didn't merit it in any sense whatsoever, which means that this doctrine of God's election, God's choosing, his choosing of his people can never be, it's never a basis for arrogance. It's never a basis for doubt. His his choices are are located, they're fixed in his sovereign pleasure, in his will, in his mind, and in his love. All you need to know is that his choice to draw you to himself is completely unmerited and it's gracious toward you. You haven't done anything to deserve it. And if it happened before the foundation of the world, as Paul says, You know you didn't do anything to earn it because you weren't there. There's nothing you've done. And knowing that we are chosen in Jesus, that he is the elect elect one, means that my connection with him has nothing to do with how I feel today or how bad I messed up last week. It has to do with the objective, concrete reality that I am in communion with him and with his body, and then there's nothing to fear. Well, someone may raise the objection, well... If you say that, that's just a recipe for lawlessness. That's just a recipe for presumption. If if you just say, well, you're, you're in Jesus because God has drawn you sovereignly and, and placed you, uh, his, his love upon you, well, that just means you can do whatever you want, right? You just, we don't have to be faithful. We just have to have this outward casual appearance of faithfulness, and it doesn't matter what we do or say. But all that goes right out the window because we read here that he chooses us so that we might walk before him in love, holy and blameless, just like God separated Israel, that they might be a kingdom of priests. He gave them special clothes, he gave them special diet, he gave them special feast days. If You think of how bad things smelled in the ancient world with poor sanitation and poor plumbing, if it even existed at all how bad the world smelled, and now here Israel is this nation, they use water to cleanse themselves when they have impurities. When they go to the tabernacle or to the temple, there's all this roasting and, and barbecuing of meat all the time. There's a special incense burning there. And so when you go to the tabernacle or you go to the temple, that's going to get in your clothes. It's going to get in your hair. Have you ever been grilling out all afternoon and you just smell like a hamburger all day and you don't want to take a shower because you smell like a hamburger and you like that smell? <laughs> that's, that, that was the smell of God's people with the incense and the, and the smoke of the sacrifices. They were set apart. They smelled different. God's infinitely glorious plan includes not only His sovereign choice and His calling, but also equipping us to be different, to smell different, to be set apart, equipping us to holiness, putting our feet on the road to sanctification. And all of this is wrapped up in the counsel of His will. This is all of father's work in redemption. And I'm going to pick up some speed here. He continues, verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Notice that Paul doesn't have here a philosophical discussion on the logic of election or predestination. He gets more technical in Romans, but here he simply notes what God has done and he praises God for it. The question that this presents us then is not Why did God choose his special people and not others? The real wonder for us is why did he choose anybody? Why doesn't he vaporize the entire earth for its rebellion against him? That's the question. Because we don't understand how far we have fallen from him. We don't understand how wicked and depraved we are apart from Jesus. Another thing to remember is that his choice is not reserved for some tiny sliver of humanity, just a few chosen frozen that he's he's selected who managed to somehow slip in through a loophole somehow. In Revelation, remember, John sees this immense crowd of the redeemed, the great multitude that no man can number from every nation, tribe, people, and language— Don't think that somehow at the end of history, Satan is going to win, that there are going to be more people with Satan in death in eternity than with Jesus in life in eternity. Don't think that Satan wins. Jesus wins. And God's favor rests upon a boundless expanse of humanity, such a boundless expanse that your mind cannot even conceive of it. Both those who have already been born, those who are alive today, and those who aren't going to be born for another 10,000 years who are already predestined to adoption as sons. Verse 6, we'll keep going. To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Jesus is the beloved one. Jesus is the holy one. Jesus is the accepted one. And it's only in union with him that we have fellowship with the Father. So, So that's the work of the Father, to draw us and call us to himself, to call a people for himself before the foundation of the world. Now Jesus steps up. These people that God has called need delivering. They need redeeming. And Jesus steps up and delivers these people from their sins and from the kingdom of darkness. Verse seven. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. When you read the word redemption, think deliverance. And when you think deliverance, think of the exodus. Jesus's name means savior, deliverer, and Jesus is the mighty deliverer who has rescued his people from the kingdom of darkness and death and ignorance, just as God delivered his people from Egypt. The people who belong to Jesus have passed through the waters of baptism, just as the people uh, coming out of Egypt passed through the waters of the Red Sea so that they could go feast with God, so that they could hear him speak from Mount Sinai, so that they could build him a house and conquer the world. They could conquer first the promised land. Well, this has all uh, happened to us as well. He has brought us through the waters of baptism. He has sat us down to talk to us, to speak with us, and to feast with us. And we are now in the new creation, building him a house, conquering in his name. And that's what Jesus has done for us as our Redeemer. And what that means is that, once again, redemption, salvation, is not something that terminates on me salvation is not something that's only about getting me right. My personal salvation, my personal relationship to God is one piece of God's overall act to remake the world, to set up his kingdom on earth. And every act of obedience to God is an act of rebellion against the world of death and darkness and ignorance. I keep seeing this interesting quote, every act of beauty." is a revolt against the modern world. I mean, it's so good. Every act of beauty is a revolt against the modern world. And, and that's, that's a great way to think if we say the modern world is the world set up in opposition to God's kingdom. Young people, God has given you, more, more than any of us, God has given you this energy, this revolutionary energy, iconoclastic energy do you know what I mean by iconoclastic I mean you want to tear things down that don't work anymore you want to you want to take things apart that people have set up in previous generations that are ugly and disgusting these things that they revere these things that they really think are something but you see it for what it is and you see the emperor has no clothes and this is really stupid and we're going to tear it down God has given youth this energy. You want to make things better. You want to tear down idols. You want to tear down things that don't work anymore. You want to reform society. Here's an idea, young men and women. Focus all of that energy on toppling idols uh, and and toppling the old creation that Jesus has saved you from. Don't, Don't rebel against Zion. Don't rebel against the city of God. Everyone around you does that. Everyone wears that uniform. Everyone waves that flag. Everyone everyone is in high revolt against Zion, right? You be the true countercultural rebel, the true countercultural agitator. Rebel against Egypt, not Zion. Rebel against Babylon and Greece. Rebel in the name of Jesus against all of the worldly institutions and idolatries that your generation inherited that don't work anymore and never worked, and all those things that have set themselves against Jesus and his kingdom, all those things which rival the Lord Jesus anything that asks from you, worship that belongs to Jesus needs to come down and it needs to be destroyed. And God has given you the energy to do it. And he's given you the impetus to do it. Attack those things. Attack the things that rob Jesus of glory. Knock them down. That's, you want the real revolution? You want the real alternative? That is, that is it. Because Jesus is at the heart. He's at the heart of that mission. He's he's knocking down the old world and he's setting up his kingdom. He's already doing it. We're we're just trying to play catch up to what he's doing. But that's the real countercultural movement this world needs. Every act of truth, every act of beauty, every act of goodness is a revolt against the world of death and Satan, and this is what God intends to do in Jesus, to bring all things together under the leadership, under the kingship of Jesus. Now, Paul finally turns to the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, "'In him you also trusted, "'after you heard the word of the truth, "'the gospel of your salvation, "'in whom also, having believed, "'you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, "'who is the guarantee of our inheritance "'until the redemption of the purchased possession "'to the praise of his glory.'" He started out talking about spiritual blessings in heavenly places and now he brings it all the way back around at the end to talk about the Holy Spirit's work in redemption. The Spirit is the unifier. The Spirit is the sealer. The Spirit is the one who brings all things together and holds all things together. It's the Spirit who puts us in union with Jesus, with his body. The spirit, Paul says, is also the down payment. He's the earnest money. He's the promise that God will complete his work of redemption, complete the work he started all the way back before the foundation of the world. Now, this this hymn, and I've called it a hymn because it's very it's very hymn-like. It's so uh, full of praise and, and thanksgiving. And many commentators also call this a hymn, but But Paul ends this word, uh, this this hymn, with the word glory. All of this activity of the Trinity is to the praise of God's glory. And glory is beauty. Glory is weight. Glory is light. Glory is goodness. It's all to the praise of God's glory. He talked about the glory of God back in verse 6 as well. All of this talk of glory in the church, glory in the elect, glory in the work of God among his people, glory where is it can you see it can you identify it where is all this glory he speaks about why doesn't it look like we have any glory why when we look around the church does it look like whatever the opposite of glory is messiness brokenness trouble aggravation why does where's the glory and that's not just a question for the modern evangelical Protestant church, though it is a good question for the church at large. But that's a question for us in our present situation. I said last week that as we go through this book, I want us to keep directing it back to us in our life as a congregation and where we are and what we're doing. Where's the, where's the glory? Where's the glory in what we're doing? Where's the glory in all of this? Let me put it another way. Why do the compromised churches... And the heretical churches and the churches that embrace all kinds of perversion, that, ra- that, that wave rainbow flags in front of their building and, and care not a bit what God says. They don't believe his word. They don't believe it's inspired or inerrant. Why, why do they have all the glory? Why, why do they have the nice buildings and the big steeples? Why do they have the organs and the comfortable pews? Why do they have the classrooms and the resources? Why do they have all that? And we're just trying to get a toehold in our community. What gives? Where's the glory in that? Where's the glory in this? Well, here's our consolation, and here's the message from Ephesians 1. Paul says, you already have glory. We already have the favor of God. We have the weightiness of all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. What we're going to pray for and what we're going to work for is that God would make that glory break out and make it visible, just as he's done in other times in the history of the church. Often God loves to cover things up. He likes to cover up glory and then make it break through at just the right time. And God does that. But, but there's also this. We have a perception problem. We have glory... But we don't see it. We are very much like the dwarves. We're eating prime rib, and we think we're eating a rabbit, rotten cabbage leaf. We, we're drinking rich red wine. We think we're drinking uh, water out of a donkey's trough. It's a perception problem. Secondly, this is something also we need to know the, the foundation of real glory, the foundation of lasting glory, is truth and obedience. That we walk holy and without blame before him in love. That's the basis of real glory. So what gets passed off as glory, what gets passed off as influence and richness and, and weightiness of presence by those who don't love God, what gets passed off by them as glory is not real glory. It's temporary. It's passing. It's fleeting if it's not grounded in truth. It's possible to possess a, a kind of glory, but to use it to glorify evil. And we want to glorify good things and true things. So then, if we really believe, and my hope is that you do really believe, that we already have that glory in Jesus, we won't be motivated to go find it somewhere else. We won't try to churn it up or engineer it or manufacture it some other way. We already have it. We just need to manifest it over time as the Holy Spirit blesses us with life and the ability to continue bringing things to order. When you believe the whole Bible and you teach the whole Bible and you pray it and you sing it and you seek to be faithful in all the ways God has commanded you and you you eat real bread and drink real wine together with your children in the presence of God with all the baptized saints, that gives you, people of God, that gives you a big foundation to build on. And it takes longer to build on a big foundation than a little one. And when it grows, that, that bigger building, not literally, I'm speaking figuratively as the church is a building, when it grows, it's going to have a deeper, more firm, solid, stable base. You can only build lasting things on truth. You can't build them on foolishness. Or lies. And so what Paul has started here, he's given us this reassurance, this glory, that God has called us out. He has lifted us up. He has seated us with Jesus in the heavenlies. He has adopted us as sons, who have all the powers and privileges of the natural heir. And our inheritance is that He has equipped us, He has equipped us to reshape the earth according to the heavenly blueprint. We have glory. Child of God, you have glory. You have these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places but you don't see it yet. You have it. And with that confidence, we can build and work in diligence and hope that it's going to break out and be visible when the Holy Spirit is ready. Let's give thanks. Father, we praise you again for your word and I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would continue making application to our hearts. Father, uh, grow us and strengthen us on that firm foundation of truth. May we never compromise or, or, uh, or, or shy away in fear uh, from what you have commanded us to do, but may we with boldness and courage follow you all our days. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.